in conjunction with Lord's Day 19, we will open God's holy word to two passages, the book of Psalms, Psalm 110, and also from Acts 1. Psalm 110, we begin reading at verse 1, a a psalm of David, the word of the Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the Jew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And we read from Acts chapter 1, the first 11 verses. Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So far, God's word. 
Let us also turn to our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 19. Why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await, as judge from heaven, the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. The sermon I read this afternoon is from the hand of Reverend Reuben Bradenhoff. After the sermon, we will sing together from Psalm 121, all verses. Beloved in Christ. Do we really need Lord's Day 19? I ask that because when you place this Lord's Day next to the previous one, you see a lot of repetition. For Lord's Day 18 speaks about the ascension of Christ. So does Lord's Day 19. Lord's Day 18 explains how Christ in heaven blesses and cares for us. So does Lord's Day 19. And both Lord's Days 18 and 19 mention that Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Between these two Lord's Days, there definitely is some repetition. So maybe we could drop this one and give the Catechism students one less Lord's Day to learn. But there's a good reason for this overlap. Let's say that Lord's Day 18 deals with the basic fact of Christ's ascension. But Lord's Day 19 sets out its purpose. That is, this Lord's Day is very clear about the destination to which everything is moving forward, the end goal. In other words, Christ isn't going to stay in heaven indefinitely, but he's going to return to this earth. Everything that he does today is about getting ready 
for the day of His second coming. Christ isn't physically near. Yet in a very real way, His presence with us continues, even in all His divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit. And He'll come back for a beautiful reunion with His people. Christ left earth in order to receive glory in heaven. And while he's away, he's working hard to bring us into glory. I preach to you God's word as it is summarized in Lord's Day 19. Christ, in his glory, is preparing our future glory. Today, he rules from heaven. While we live on earth... And soon we shall be with him. So in the first place, we will hear about today he rules from heaven. So what is it that sets these two Lord's Days apart? Getting down to specifics, we can begin to answer this question with a comparison. Think of how the prophet Elijah also ascended into heaven. At the end of his earthly ministry... He was taken up in a whirlwind, accompanied by chariots and horses of fire, as we read in 2 Kings 2. Elijah ascended, and Christ ascended. But of Christ alone, it says, that he went up and sat down at the right hand of God. He ascended into heaven to take his position beside the Father. So this is one way in which Lord's Day 19 fills out the picture of Christ's ascension. Without Christ sitting down, we would miss something important. Now, sitting down is one of the ordinary activities that we do. Whenever we are doing something that requires us to stay in one place for a while, we tend to sit down, eating a meal, reading a book. Working on the computer, we sit. Look at what you're all doing right now, sitting and listening. But for Christ, sitting isn't something ordinary or passive. Our Lord is seated in heaven, having finished his redeeming work on earth. He had been on his feet, busily leading his life of obedience. He had worked very hard, teaching leading, healing, and finally, bearing the Father's punishment against sin. He worked hard, and now he was done, and he sat down. And yet, this sitting down isn't like you or I will sit down to rest. We vacuum the whole house, we mow the lawn, or we preach a sermon, and then we sit down to rest, to catch a breather, and drink a glass of water. But Christ sat down to keep working. For Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father. Today we speak of someone's right-hand man. And we mean a skilled apprentice, a trusted deputy, a helper who can always be counted on to do a good job. Christ is more than a right-hand man. Back in ancient times, the kings and queens often had a person of talent 
and unquestioned loyalty sitting on their right side. They'd be on their throne. And just beside them sat this top official. To him they could turn directly and give the word, Go and get my armies ready for war. Or, Make sure that those people suffering famine get enough food to eat. Through the person at their right hand, they put their decisions into effect. What such a person said and did was the will of the king himself. In a similar way, the Old Testament speaks about the great privilege of being at God's right hand. Nowhere is that more obvious than in Psalm 110. We read this psalm earlier. It's one of several royal songs in the Psalter. The Israelites probably sang it when a new king was crowned in Jerusalem. They praised God, for it was a gift to have someone faithful in charge, someone to lead them in battle and to do justice in the land. The psalm is certainly about the kings in David's line, those at God's right hand and who represented the Lord on earth. But there's another level to Psalm 110, a much deeper meaning, and that becomes clear when we get to the New Testament. It's a short psalm, but there is none that is more important to the New Testament than this one. Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted of all the psalms, quoted directly at least eight times and alluded to several more times. Verse 4 gets almost an entire chapter's worth of commentary in Hebrews 7. Psalm 110 is loaded to the brim with theology, or more accurately, with Christology, the doctrine of our Savior. The New Testament relates this psalm to several key parts of Jesus' work, his priestly office, his resurrection, his ascension, and is sitting down at God's right hand. Focusing for now on verse 1, we know how Christ fulfilled these words. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. For when Christ came into the heavenly places after his resurrection and ascension, God granted him this position of authority and honor. Jesus was the great son of David, the true king of Israel, the prince of peace. And he received a position of supreme power. Christ is at the Father's right hand, not merely as a main helper or top apprentice. He's equal to the Father in power and glory. My son, you've proven yourself so sit down here, the Father said to Jesus, to rule, to be the instrument of my will on earth. Rule over everyone, every tech billionaire, every mighty president, every power broker in this world. Have dominion over those who hate you and those who love you. Be king over the angels, all the demons, 
and Lord of all creation. For I give you all authority in heaven and on earth. Christ sat down at the Father's side. But that doesn't mean his work is done. For if you have great authority, you also have a lot of responsibility. As the Catechism says, Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. Right now, Christ governs all creation for the good of his people, the church. And this is work that he does best from heaven. Just before he ascended, Jesus told his disciples that he had received the supreme position in the universe. But like any of us, his disciples were forgetful. They still thought of things in an earthly way. So they asked him in Acts 1, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 6. In other words, Now that you've been given unlimited power and you've defeated Satan and conquered death, then why not rebuild the kingdom now? Why leave just when you have all the momentum? But from that day onwards, Christ will supervise the kingdom-building work from his throne in heaven. Why do it from heaven? Why govern remotely? Surely one main reason is because sinners will be saved only by faith in his name. Faith, the assurance of things not seen. If Christ the King was still physically present on earth, he might have a great following because everyone could see him in person and be impressed by him. He might be immensely popular, but maybe have few true believers. Christ wants sinners to accept him by faith. And he wants his church to live by faith, to depend on him, even though we cannot see him now. Since his departure, the church has had much work to do, and we do it with abundant help from heaven. So we've seen how he rules from heaven In the second place, while we live on earth. It's not the most profound observation that we live on earth. But we are here. And Christ is in heaven. So if he's our head and we're his body, shouldn't we be together now? But for now, Christ and we live apart. He has a purpose in heaven, and so do we here on earth. In Acts 1, the disciples stood staring into the blue yonder after Christ ascended. As we said, his disciples didn't fully get what their Lord's purpose was, so there was anxiety. Their master was gone. Now what? But they had no reason to stand there. They had a job to do making the gospel known to the ends of the earth. Their master commanded it. Listen to what Psalm 110 says of the Lord. Your people will offer themselves freely, 
will be volunteers on the day of your power. Or like in our rhymed version of this psalm, your people will be holy, glad, and willing. Redeemed sinners should line up to give to God, to worship, to sacrifice. For it's a great honor to serve someone so great. With Jesus seated at God's right hand in heaven, his people should be eager volunteers and ready servants. Psalm 110 speaks of how God's people give their very best, the peak and prime of their energy and talent, because it's for the Lord. What's our Christ-given task while we are here on earth? Psalm 110 clearly reminds us of at least two of our jobs, kings and priests. Because Christ is the glorious king and we share in his anointing, he calls us to the royal task of fighting against evil, resisting the devil, putting on God's armor and going to battle. And because Christ is the great high priest, He makes us priests, those called to present ourselves and everything we are in grateful worship to our God. And certainly we can't forget the central task that Christ gave to his church just before he ascended. What was his final charge? Go and make disciples of all nations. As Jesus says in Acts 1 verse 8, You shall be witnesses to me. And that sets before us our prophetic task. Not everyone is a missionary or evangelist, of course not. But everyone must be willing to speak about the name of Jesus in this world. A prophet, by definition, speaks. We are witnesses of what Christ can do. We are witnesses to how he has changed us and saved us. And he wants many more people to know. In fact, he won't come back until his gospel has gone into all the world. And so that gives us a job to do. As we think about our earthly task and how to carry it out, we might hesitate. It seems like too big a job, too hard. Who's brave enough to speak up in this world? How can we confess them when there is so much hostility? Or is it even possible to deny yourself with all the pleasures that we can access? It's all well and good to talk about presenting your life as a sacrifice to God. But what if I don't like giving things up? What if I like my comfort and ease too much. But Christ assures us of his ready help. Listen again to his words to the disciples just before he left. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The mighty Spirit of Christ will always enable the church to do her task. We know how Jesus very soon fulfilled his promise. 
just a few short days after his ascension, he sent them his Holy Spirit. The rest of the book of Acts tells the story of how the apostles and many others were enabled by Christ to testify to what they had seen and heard. How he empowered them to bring this saving message to the world. Christ supplies us too for our lives of service here on earth. Christ from heaven pours out his spirit. And through him we continually receive heavenly gifts. Question and answer 51. Notice how it says he pours out gifts. That's a term of generosity. Purposely chosen. If you pour something out, you're not holding back. It's not a slow trickle of iced coffee that you serve your guests on the back patio, but it's plenty that you pour out. As much as they ask for, they can have. You'll make more if you need to. Like that, Christ pours out His gifts on those who ask. He gives all the material things you need and the physical abilities And the blessings of family and church. These good things come from him. Poured out generously. And most importantly. He gives the fullness of his Holy Spirit. Through his Holy Spirit. Christ saturates you with love. And joy. And peace. So you can ask him. For wisdom. To make sense of this perplexing life. You can ask him for patience. To endure hardship or patience to deal graciously with hard people. And Christ will give these gifts to you. Christ gives contentment with our earthly situation. He gives cleansing from sin. He gives faith by which we can stand fast in Him. Our Savior loves us so much that he'll give all that we need to persevere while we wait for his return. And the fact is, there is much to endure. I appreciate how realistic the catechism is with the first line of answer 52. In all my sorrow and persecution. Notice how it assumes that both of these things will be true for us. It assumes that each of us will have occasion to speak about sorrow and to speak about persecution. That's because the Bible tells us to expect both realities. Says Paul in Acts 14 verse 22, We must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. That's the kind of road that lies ahead of us. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter 4 verse 12, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Sorrow and persecution for God's people are not unusual. Expect it. Prepare for it. Before he comes again, Jesus says, wickedness will be multiplied on the earth. The man of lawlessness will come and many antichrists will appear. Here too, Psalm 110 is a great help. 
It gives us eyes to properly see this hostility and to know where it comes from. There are enemies. There are hostile peoples. And those who are dead set against the Lord. In fact, Psalm 110 paints a brutal picture of wrath. Dead bodies heaped up. And executions. Because this is war. And this is the life we live on earth. The devil won't relent with his attacks. The world won't suddenly become more welcoming of Christians. And our own sinful flesh will stubbornly hold on to its wrong desires. But before we get discouraged... Remember the glorious theme of Psalm 110, which is amplified a hundred times in the New Testament. Christ is king. He is at God's right hand. And he makes enemies a footstool for his feet. Christ never fled from battle, but he rushed forward, won the victory, and now sits enthroned at God's right hand. Today, we live on earth with its sorrows and persecutions, living as exiles, looking forward to home. In Christ, we already have so much, and we know that He is working in heaven to give us even more, for He has promised that one day we'll be with Him in glory, and soon we shall be with Him, our third point. Going back to Acts 1 for a final time, we see the disciples staring into heaven, dismayed and uncertain. And the angel said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He was gone, but he'd certainly be back. That promise gives great joy for the future. He will return, coming in like manner as he left. Ponder what that means. His return will be the perfect counterpart to his departure. One day, Jesus will return in his resurrection body, just like when he left. He will return with the clouds, just like he left. And every eye will see him, and he will return as the loving Savior. Remember, the one who departed from his church with hands outstretched in blessing. In like manner, he will return. And this means that when we see him on that day, we will not fear, not if we've believed in him. Yes, He is coming in judgment. He is coming with power and authority to judge every sin and to restore justice to this earth. That's a scary prospect if your sins are still on your account. If you haven't been wholly glad and willing to serve the Lord. But the believer's comfort is that we belong to Christ in life and death, and judgment. The great Lord that we'll face on the last day, says the Catechism, is the very same person 
who already bore the punishment that was to fall on us? Question answer 52. We await as judge the one who was judged in our place. He'll return in the same way that he departed, with amazing love for those whom he washed in his blood. We were reminded of that this morning when we celebrated the Holy Supper. That's what the Catechism says about Christ's return. In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await. This lifting up the head is not like the disciples' fretful gazing into the sky in Acts 1. No, it's a confident expectation of grace. It's like what Psalm 121 says. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. In days of trouble, we look up in the full assurance that our Lord is coming again soon. We lift up our eyes. And why should we be afraid? For it is our Savior whom we'll meet at the last day. This means we should keep working. We keep up our spirits. We stay faithful. And we stay hopeful. We're exhorted in Galatians 6 verse 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. We keep working. And we keep our eyes on the eternal harvest. So we lift our eyes and pray for our Savior's return. He has left us, but we know that soon the Lord of glory will take us to himself in heavenly joy and glory. As Jesus said in Acts 1, it's not for us to know times or seasons regarding when exactly the Lord will return, but he will return. That much is sure. Don't forget that just as surely as Jesus went into heaven, so certainly will he return. We lift up our head and eagerly wait. Don't let this heavenly perspective be blurred by anything here on earth, whether by many hardships or many blessings. But keep your vision clear. These are meant to be times of expectation, preparation, longing, and waiting. So what are you waiting for? What are you preparing for? Are you getting ready for Christ? Don't hang back, hold out, or hesitate. But let us be holy, glad, and willing to live for the Lord, now and always. Amen.